do, as you know, when you uh, when you asked me to write it with with you. But um, I'm really glad I did. So no, you've been we, the right, uh, you you were the right person from the beginning, man. It was love at first sight. It was. It was. It was definitely. Uh, it was a, a match made in. I don't know if it was heaven, but well, uh, is that to be seen? somewhere? Here so, comes, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. No, bro. Um, you know, one of the things that that um, drove me to 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 want to do this work was the fact that there was so much violence in community, and not just you know not just any old violence, but violence that was co- feel like it was coming from everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're about the same age, right? Yep, so, exactly the same age. I, I'll be 49 in September, Yeah. so just a little bit younger than you. Yeah, and I'll be 49 in, you know, in, in June. And um, we, we, we often talk about how our exposure to culture mm-hmm. kind of um, created an environment for us that kind of shaped our... Yep our perception of the world yep. when it came to kind of race and culture. Mm-hmm. I, I want to hear, I love, I love how you talk about that in your own experience. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that, um, that unites us is that we both have a, a love of hip-hop, yeah. and we both came of age at that like moment. Like you said, hip-hop. Yeah, well, it's, it's, why all the P's? Hip-hop. <laughs> to <laughs> hip-hop, to the hip-hop, hippie. How does the hippie... Hippie to the hip hop. No, that's Don't not stop. it. That's not uh, I can't it. remember how it goes. I, I'm not going to rap on this podcast. That's for sure. That is definitely not Neither for sure. Um, not I'll just say life. rap. We both listened to rap. Yeah. In the in the the late '80s, early '90s. That's yeah, but hip hop's the culture, right? Yeah. So we, it was more yeah. than just rap, right? Yeah. It was like the emotion and yep. the 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 stories being told yep. by 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 the rap, yeah. right? And, and I think I experienced it. I, I think one thing that that separates us is that you experienced the culture. And I observed the culture. I was kind of outside the culture, looking in, and listening and learning. And I and I and I often say that I, I as much of an academic as I am, I really learned sociology from the music, mm. from I think the way that the culture was uh, transmitted through the music had a really big impact on me, and and really affected the way that I saw race, the way that I saw this country, uh, the way that. It, Maybe I didn't understand it so clearly at the time, but as I learned more and as I saw more about this country, the the lyrics from the music that I was listening to at that time, P.E., Boogie Down Productions, KRS-One, uh, Eric B. and Rakim, uh, uh, Living Color, you know, those those artists who were telling, they weren't just boasting, they weren't just telling stories about their exploits, they were telling about life in black communities. And I, I think at the time I heard it and I said, oh, you know, um, here are people who struggle and still find joy and fight back uh, and and are trying to communicate something, trying to tell me something, and I listened. So so where were you listening from? Where, where I was were you listen- born and raised? Where were you born and raised? I was uh, born and raised in the suburbs of D.C. Yeah. Uh, grew up in a in an upper-middle-class family yeah. uh, in, in Potomac, Maryland. Um, I... Uh, what you know? W- what made me relate to to the music was my childhood wasn't happy. My mom died when I was very young. My dad remarried someone who um, was abusive, and uh, I had a um, I had a difficult childhood from the age of three, uh, basically into adulthood. Wow! Uh, and I, uh, you know, did 
did things I maybe shouldn't have done, got in, you know, got into things I shouldn't have gotten into, always from a very kind of, you know, innocent, innocent place. Um, but I was unhappy and, and hip hop rap gave me a, a, a perspective on people who found challenges and still managed to have joy and still managed to push back on it. And that's how I related to it no, and initially. That, and, and that's the, that is the power of hip hop, right? Mm-hmm. Because I grew up in a middle-class family mm-hmm. in the suburbs of Newark, New Jersey, in South Orange, um, to a uh, mother, a uh, working mother, and, um, and a father that um, was succumbed to crack cocaine. Mm-hmm. When crack yeah. cocaine was an epidemic in community, he fell to crack cocaine. So about eight years old mm-hmm. um, and beyond, seven or eight and beyond was, you know, we didn't have, an, I often say we didn't have um, financial deficits. Mm-hmm. It was the emotional yep. deficits that we grew. And where did I find, you know, support? Where did I find examples of who I needed to be and how I needed mm-hmm. to be it? My friend group, uh, mm-hmm. all adolescent boys, yep. uh, but hip hop. Mm-hmm. Hip hop was was the center of all of our worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. from the music to the dancing. Yeah. Uh, mostly in hip hop culture that I was involved, it was mostly music and dancing and 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 some DJing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't have much uh, graffiti, although um, all of us learned how to bubble letter and mm-hmm. all of us learned yeah. how to do that do that piece, man. Yeah. And, and it was the same t- the same hip hop that you're talking yep. about, yeah. you know, PE, um, KRS One, uh, for me, Das Effects, Poor Righteous Teachers, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, several several artists that gave me perspective, um, you know, and then later on, uh, Nas and you know, Dead Prez, mm-hmm. and, you know, struggle music, mm-hmm. um, yeah. struggle music, and then. And then I, you know, I have a tooth for Mob Deep and you mm-hmm. know Helter Skelter and you know some of the more hardcore mm-hmm. uh, yeah. hip hop of the time that that allowed me to channel my anger. I often say Mob Deep got me through med school. You know, <laughs> Mob Deep and Jay Z got me through med school. I listened to a lot of Mob Deep and, and Jay Z while I was in med school. Yeah, I think I, so. In in the conversations that we've had, uh, the. the Hip hop was, um, I think it was central to both of our uh, coming of ages in, in a very different way. Um, I didn't, didn't do the dancing part uh, so much, um, but, it, but it did get me through a lot. Um, and music in general got me through a lot. It wasn't, it wasn't just hip hop. Um, and it, one of the things that brought us to this point was that we were both impacted by the, the stories of justice and injustice yeah. uh, that, that, uh, were, um, uh, that were kind of being broadcast to the, to the world. And I think we were lucky, you know, I think us Gen Xers um, have kind of been left out of a lot of uh, current political conversations, but, but we were lucky that we came of age at a moment when popular music, like you could just turn on the radio and... You know, like by the time I get to Arizona was on or fight the power, um, it was just there. And it I think it united people across the across racial divides and across economic divides. But you know, Jay, about I these questions, I didn't, I didn't realize that it did. Right. I mean, I, mean, I, grew, yeah. I grew up with, you know, uh, in a mostly black and Jewish community in South Orange. Right. Um, 
uh, and in that in that black and Jewish in that black and Jewish community uh, that I grew up in in South Orange, we talked mm-hmm. about. I went to all the bat mitzvahs mm-hmm. and all the bar mitzvahs, yep. uh, and we had um, you know uh, a shared experience. But it really wasn't until until I met you mm-hmm. that I realized that there were white kids my same age engaging mm-hmm. in consuming the culture mm-hmm. very similar as I was engaging in consuming mm-hmm. the culture. And that was, that's, that's interesting to me, yeah. you know, which, which t- we didn't, I didn't think that would have tied us together, Yeah, but it, it quickly tied us together. So I, I often ask this question of myself, the extent to which I was part of that culture, part of that world, or whether I was literally consuming it. I, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't relate to the stories of life on the street. It, whatever, you know, whatever hardships I felt at home, money wasn't one of them. Policing wasn't one of them. Having family members in prison wasn't one of them. Crack wasn't one of them. You know, so, so I think that I... Uh, I, I think my 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 experience with the music and your experience with the music um, were s- similar in some ways and very different in other ways. I couldn't relate to the identity of the speaker. But 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 let let me put this yeah. in perspective for you. Yeah. Right now, you're a human rights professor, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So because so- of that music, in a lot of ways, I really do. But I fundamentally believe that. But I was, in, I was consuming it as someone who heard the stories and thought that it was wrong in the same way that you were, but I didn't, it wasn't my experience. No, and, and for oftentimes, the art isn't the consumer's experience, right? You, you mm-hmm. know, when you look at, listen to poetry or you look at art on the wall, there's some, there is an emotional attachment to the art that may not be the exact experience, but there is a shared experience yes. and that 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 call for help that hip hop has always been right was a call for help that you are having as a young person similar to the call for help that I was having and hip hop as a culture hip hop as a music not just just not just as a music mm-hmm. but as a culture i think connected to us both and has mm-hmm. shaped the type of work that we've done up until us meeting. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And now has shaped the book that we're on this podcast talking about. Totally. I, I definitely I definitely agree with that. And when I when I look back at who I or when I look at who I am and I look at my sense of humor, my sense of justice, um, m- my love of wordplay despite my lack of ability to do it, um, m- my sort of inability to turn away when I see injustice or pain. I think so much of that comes from the music. And I think it's because at the time that I was listening to the music, I was also going through something. My life was challenging. I was doing things that if I were black would have gotten me in trouble. I was a pretty serial shoplifter. I feel like I can say that at this point in my life. Yeah. Um, and I stole, first I started stealing food because my stepmother wouldn't let me eat. So I would go to the store and I would steal things so that I could eat. And um, I uh, moved on to things like being the nerd that I was. I stole mechanical pencils and erasers because I loved mechanical pencils. Yeah. And would steal notebooks and stuff like that. And then I moved on to music, tapes, blank tapes, so I could make mixes. 
um, and eventually got caught. And my punishment was that they called my dad and made him come get me. And now, looking back on these things, I realized that if I were a black, a 14-year-old black kid, there is no way in hell that the Montgomery Mall security office would have just called my parents and said, come get me. Yeah. And, and I, I think I understood that at the time in an abstract sense, but it was only when I really began to understand this country kind of critically that that hit me. And, and, again, and, and again, the, the idea that um, the role that music played in all of this is that the, the music actually planted a seed in my head. That's it. And it took a long time to germinate. And it, I think in, in, the, the few, in the years before we met in 2017, I think the combination of my work, my human rights work, and the fact that I was looking at this country and seeing the exact same things happening, being filmed in many cases, as I was dealing with in other countries, that, it, that the, the kind of the seeds really began to germinate. And then the initial conversation that we had about where's the data about police killings was the culmination of that awakening or the, the kind of realizing that we have a problem in this country. And then you telling me that there's no data, I was just like, now we need to decide if we're allowed to curse on this. I was like, holy shit, there are... You go to places like I think South you just Africa. Decided. I, I decided this is going to be a cursing podcast. So yes, we, yes. We, just so you know, yeah. will there be parental discretion yeah. is advised yeah, yeah. on this podcast? Just that this this podcast contains language that may not be suitable for people who don't like cursing. That's uh, it. It will be a so, truly hip hop podcast. Yes, exactly. There will be exactly. bombs dropped in this podcast. You <laughs> best believe it. <laughs> Viewer and listener discretion advised. <laughs> yes, We're sir. not. I don't know when 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 they start. The good Reverend Doctor will <laughs> might be cussing on the podcast. Just so y'all know, uh, I'll try. I'll try to keep it keep it clean. Um, but I I really just said, holy shit! When I when I'm in South Africa, when I'm in uh, you know Bosnia, in um, you know in in all of these places around the world, the goal of the government is to not let you know what they're doing. The goal is to to hide the truth. And that's what human rights work is all about. It's, it's revealing the truth. It's revealing the truth. That's right. That's it's, right. It's, it's putting names to victims. It's counting. And that's it's right. accounting for and what, these, and, and, these things. And what we found, right, you know, throughout the work that you've done and we've done together, we found that we're not the first to be disturbed by the fact that no one's counting people that are dying in the custody of our carceral system or in the custody of our mm-hmm. criminal legal system. We're not the first. We're 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 two of many mm-hmm. actually, devoid of government. Right. That's yep. the problem. Is that in the absence in of the government absence of government tracking it when it's in plain sight? Um, we've we found we found these jewels of people, mm-hmm. right? Throughout the arc of history, these 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 conscientious individuals that made a cognitive decision to start counting and start lifting up names and experiences of those that have died in custody for a myriad of reasons, right? Throughout throughout the, the book for a myriad of reasons. And that's what's so exciting about and different about what we've done here is that it's not just one linear voice 
of one type of individual, but it's multiple people with different purposes, different stations in life, different experiences, and different um, uh, employment, right? Different, you know, they're coming from different places. Similar to you and I, yep, right? Absolutely. Coming from different absolutely. perspectives, yep. looking at this problem of, of death and custody. And, um, and, and so I think we, we, can, we can talk about um, what brought, you know, you here, right? What, you know, what is your own personal story that, you know, we talked about our, 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 our personal connection with hip-hop um, and how that has shaped us and has found a seed in fertile soil and now is growing into um, what will be and continue to be a life's work for us, right, together. Absolutely, I mean, we'll, yeah. You and yeah. I will be connected together for the rest of our lives, I believe. This is not, and this friendship um, that is blossoming mm-hmm. too, right? So what, what started this, this particular area of, of interest? Tell us a little bit about your kind of your career tra- trajectory. Where'd you go to school? Tell us a little bit about that. So... I was gonna I was gonna turn the tables on you, but I guess I have to. I did it to, already. To keep keep talking. So <laughs> I uh, I I um, after after my crazy childhood in uh, in uh, suburban Maryland, um, I eventually ran away once. Lived with my grandparents for a while. Ran away again and moved in with uh, Aunt Karen and Uncle Richie, um, who are going to be listening to this. So uh, I apologize for the cursing and thank you. Uh, my aunt and uncle raised me uh, from the time I was 14, kind of saved my life, to be completely honest. Um, gave me love when I didn't feel it uh, from, uh, you know, from my father and obviously my stepmother and step-siblings. And uh, put me back together and then sent me off to University of Michigan where I studied biology. Uh, didn't, didn't take a single history class took a bunch of anthropology, philosophy, political philosophy. Um, and then in my, I think it was my, either my junior or senior year, I took a class in history of medicine. Uh, and it was taught by a, a guy named Marty Pernick, Martin Pernick, uh, who um, uh, kind of changed my world. He was one of those people that really changed the way that I saw the world. And the thing that I remember, I remember one thing distinctly from his class um, which was his own work, if I remember correctly, or, or, or part of his own work. Um, and that was that the, in the development of anesthesia, black people were seen to feel less pain and were also seen to have a higher tolerance for pain and so didn't receive anesthesia at the same level that white people did. And again, it was just it was one of those things that kind of blew me away. Like, w- what would lead someone to think that someone with darker skin didn't feel pain in the same way that someone with lighter skin felt pain? At the same time, I was taking classes in biological anthropology. C. Loring Brace, another professor who really changed my, my world. And uh, the, the class was really about the social construction of race. And so at the same time that I was learning that there were these white medical doctors who didn't think that black people felt pain in the same way and so didn't need anesthesia in the same way um, as white patients. And at the other time I was, and in the other place I was learning that race is just a social construction 
and that if you actually walked from the equator south and north, you would see these clines of, uh, of, of uh, skin color changing over time. Like, you wouldn't really notice it. The, the gradations were so imperceptible of the people who are actually native to those places. And I was also wondering why my... This is going to be a long, a long story. Uh, Try to keep it in five to six minutes. Five Jay. to six minutes? All Don't right. Skip ahead, B. All right, I'll no, skip ahead. ahead. I'll ahead. skip ahead. So uh, we'll, we'll just... We got to put that in the podcast. Speed, skip ahead, B. Speed it up double time. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, I'm, it's funny. I'm actually reconstructing it as we go no, along. And the so. thing about it is, is that I'm learning so much. Yeah. So keep it going. I mean, yeah. we're here. So, you know, this is good. So I, um, I was learning all of that, and then I was studying biology. And in biology, I was only learning the genetic stuff. You know, there was no, I didn't know, I don't know anything about ecology or, I did take an ecology class. I don't know about plants or animals or anything. I only know about DNA. And so that, like, all of these things were kind of coming together. And to make a long story short, I decided to actually study the history of biology um, and the, the, the way that all of this um, genetic diversity ends up coming into the legal system through DNA identification. So the idea that some of this DNA is so unique to... So, so unique to us as individuals that we can use it to identify. When, when around that history of biology mm-hmm. and DNA and you looking at DNA as this kind of surrogate marker, mm-hmm. around what year was that? So I, uh, this was uh, in, I, I was in, I was at Michigan from 92 uh, to 96 and graduated in December 95 um, and then, it, so this was all in the mid. This was all in the mid to late '90s during the the period of the Human Genome Project. Okay. Um, and and early discussions about the Human Genome Diversity Project, like we're we're sequencing one white person, and maybe we need to sequence more. And so the um, so all of these things were kind of coming together. And then it was right around when I was in graduate school. Um, I had just finished my classwork, and I went to move to Boston um, to. Uh, to uh, work with uh, a guy named Dick Lewinton, who was a very well-known scientist who died recently, um, who always had historians and philosophers in his lab. He was a, a he studied evolution at the genetic level, basically, uh, and he had gotten very involved in the story of um, uh, how common or rare particular DNA markers are within individuals. Um, so, if you have an inbred population, or if you have a population that doesn't have a lot of people you might see particular markers fairly often in each individual. But if you have a very big population that's, um, that's uh, got a lot of um, genetic, uh, diversity. genetic diversity, mm-hmm. then it's unlikely that you'll see particular combinations in particular individuals very, very often. Um, and so, so he was involved in this, and um, it was an interesting way of using my, uh, my desire to understand genetic diversity to study these things, um, and also my growing desire to do something that was more socially engaged. Uh, and I owe that to my wife, Tamara, who I, had, who I met in, um, you know, in uh, late 2000. And, uh, and we, um, I think she opened up the world to me and, and introduced me to issues of human rights and justice in ways that, again, like they were in my head, but they hadn't been expressed. Um, they were dormant. They were uh, yeah. they were potentials. Yeah, and absolutely. so so she kind of opened this world up to me. She's South African 
and Jewish, and so introduced me to the you know to the the kind of world of early post-apartheid South Africa, um, and got me interested in studying human rights at a at a at a formal level. Um, and so all of these things come together. I've done all this work on DNA and the criminal legal system, um, the role that uh, science was playing in in calling into question certain decisions that had been made that were seen to be final and suddenly, uh, you know, post-conviction, there's scientific evidence that suggests someone may not have done what they were convicted of. And sure. How do you integrate that into the, into the world? And that led me to the use of DNA identification after conflict and disaster. Um, and then I became gen- more generally interested in issues of data and, and, uh, and human rights. So how do we know what we know about conflict or about violations? Uh, and it was when I was doing work on civilian casualty recording and estimation of, of uh, deaths in times of conflict that Syria was happening, uh, that the conflict in Syria was happening. And this was the first conflict that had really taken place in the age of smartphones. So people were filming what was happening. They were filming death, not just television crews. We've, we've had that for a long time. Right. But ordinary people were filming what was happening to them. And, and they were publishing it on, on social media and sort of getting the word out. And the same people who I was engaged with on issues of casualty recording and estimation suddenly were uh, discovering or, or just being sent or seeing thousands and thousands of videos about people dying, about government actions. And the, um, they couldn't handle the 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 amount of film or the amount of recording that they were getting and I was at Carnegie Mellon where we have amazing computer science and you know they said hey I know you're talking to me about how we know how many people die in conflict but we have all of these videos and and we're overwhelmed does anyone at Carnegie Mellon know anything about video analysis like we need to automate this process and so I moved into that world and again at the same time that I was thinking about how we could use video to document human rights violations and to understand how many people were dying in Syria, um, in, you know, in, uh, in, in other places around the world, we were beginning to see Americans pulling out their cameras and recording police violence, police brutality. And initially, I would say that I, I probably interpreted those videos as being rare, and there was a point where I realized that actually these aren't rare at all. You know, this is happening to people all the time. And we had that we had the singular Rodney King That's right. uh, video when we were in high school, which was luck in nineteen ninety you know nineteen ninety one. Yeah, the same time that we were both being politicized by music. That's right. But then we didn't get another recording of of, of uh, police brutality for quite a long time. For a long time. A long time. And social media and mobile phones. Kind Probably of, another decade. Kind of, yeah. I mean, maybe even more. Maybe even more. Uh, I mean, there's really like a, a a blank in my head. You go, you go from Rodney King. I can't think of another. I can't think of another video until, you know, 2012, 2013, something like that. Yeah. And and my worlds kind of collided. I think that was the moment where my worlds collided, and I and I said. You know, I've been doing all of this work. I had done work in Bosnia. I had done work in South Africa. Um, was deeply involved in Syria, Mali. Uh, we were doing work where there were videos um, that were available. 
Ukraine, the original Ukraine uh, conflict of 2013-2014 or Euromaidan. Um, and, and I was doing that work, and I was working with human rights activists all over the world, and I just, I think I realized that I didn't need to get on a plane to be engaged in meaningful human rights work. I just had to walk a few blocks. Mm. And, and so that was kind of stirring in my head, and then um, the story that we tell in the book, I'm not going to retell it because uh, we, we don't have time for that. So I would suggest buying our book, Death in Custody, How America Ignores the Truth and What We Can Do About It, uh, coming out from Johns Hopkins University Press, September 2023. Uh, but that's why I asked you, like, where's the data? I, 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 see these, I see these videos. I have no idea how common or rare these things are. Where's the where's the good data that's being kept that's just not being published, and 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 that's where we switch to your story. 